Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome aboard, bookcase listeners. I am your airline host, Kate Gibson. <laughs> I'm not the pilot, I promise you, or you'll all be in trouble. Yeah, thank God for that. I'm Charlie Gibson, but the airplane mention is, is worthwhile. Before we start, by the way, I should say you have a bad cold, and I don't have my microphone with me, so I'm just talking into my computer. I hope the sound quality is okay. Now, why you mentioned that you are the flight attendant, and I am the whatever I am on the plane because you're the rudder I don't know I'm just trying to come up with a role for you it's because I'm super I'm always super excited but this episode we have sitting with us David Zucker and Jim Abrahams who have just along with Jerry Zucker released a book called Surely You Can't Be Serious which is sort of the compendium of the story of how airplane got made from start to finish from the beginning of the world until like yesterday. And it's a really funny and amazing book about a movie that you and I have watched together my whole life. How many times have you watched Airplane? At least 10. Really? Yes. Well, I can't say so I'm anywhere near that high, but the but it's always funny. Every time I've seen it, I find new jokes in it. It is, well, I should ask you, what is the funniest movie you think you've ever seen? Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, I would say that's one of the two for me. Monty Python and the Holy Grail and Airplane. Well, Forbes magazine did a, a study of what movie has the most laughs per minute of any movie ever made, and Airplane was number one. And the only problem I have with Airplane is I'm laughing at joke number one while joke number two goes by, and so I sort of miss it. But it is a very, very funny movie. It was made in 1980. And it, as I say, it still holds up 43 years later. So they've written this book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, which is, of course, one of the iconic lines from the movie. Also, Don't Call Me Shirley is another one. But there are a million lines from that movie that people remember. And the interesting thing about this movie is that it was made by three Young punks. I think they would not be mind being uh, so characterized. They were from Wisconsin. They had done some comedy for friends. They had a little theater where they did something called, what was it? Kentucky Fried Theater. Kentucky Fried Theater. That's right. And they got laughs and they thought, well, we can make a movie. And they decided to parody airline disaster movies. And nobody got it in Hollywood. First of all, it's a miracle that this thing ever got made. I mean, they they got their way into studio heads. I don't know how. I don't know how. They got straight actors to play this thing deadpan, because if it weren't played deadpan, it wouldn't have been funny. Which when you think about almost nobody was doing back then, nobody was doing the no, serious no. actor deadpanning. You know, I mean, you could have a funny actor who was deadpanning, but somebody who was known for being a serious actor. Uh, uh-uh. No. So they had to convince people like Peter Graves, who was doing Mission Impossible at the time, Robert Stack, who had done a bunch of movies, Leslie Nielsen. They had Julie Haggerty and Robert Hayes. Lloyd Bridges. And, and they had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as, as the co-pilot, which was a piece of inspired casting, I thought. Anyway, if listeners right now have not seen Airplane, they should go see it. Absolutely. And then read the book, because the book is a delightful 
backstage look at how this thing improbably got made, how three guys from Wisconsin went to Hollywood, convinced they could make a movie all in their 20s, all in their 20s, and got this thing made, which was a monster, monster hit. I also think what I mean, what I really took away from this interview is when you when you watch that movie, you could easily think of it as a sort of circus antic craziness that very, you know, that they barely had control of. When you read this book and you realize there was no improv, they wrote all of it. And not only that, they have very I mean, they have a set of 15 Z-A-Z rules for comedy. And so there's an infrastructure and thought and philosophy behind almost everything they do. One of my favorites is that didn't happen. Something that totally defies all logic, but is on and off the screen so fast that we get away with it. Like when Robert Stack yells, they're all on instruments and you cut to the cockpit and all of them are playing instruments. And seconds right. later, <laughs> seconds later, the saxophone's gone, They're the gone. clarinet's gone. And, and if you've done it right, the audience will go, huh? But they will also laugh. Like, I love that they have thought all of those things out. Well, one of the fascinating parts of the jokes to me is that some of the jokes are oral. You know, they're told funny. And then some of the jokes are just wild things going on in the background. But one of their rules is you can't have two funny things going on at the same time. So if the speaking part is funny, then the background can't be funny. If the background is funny, then the speaking part should be, should be absolutely straight. And the other thing is they insisted, very importantly, I think, that there be a story, that the gags are great, but there has to be a story to carry it along. And so they parodied airline disaster movies. And it, it well, as I say, I think it's the funniest movie I ever saw. I would put Monty Python second. You would put Monty Python first and Airplane second. But that's OK. We can agree to disagree. But you're wrong. <laughs> uh, anyway, we had two thirds of the ZAC trio to talk to. Jerry Zucker is in New York working on a play. But we were able to talk to Jim Abrahams and David Zucker about how the movie was made and why they wrote the book, Surely You Can't Be Serious. David Zucker, Jim Abrahams, pleasure to have you in the bookcase. Different kind of book than we have ever done, but so fun to have you here because I think both Katie and I love the airplane movie, and it's hard to believe it's 43 years old. It still stands up. David, let me start with you. Who was Mrs. Zubatsky, who you cite at the beginning of the book, and why was she responsible? in some ways for this movie? Well, it was Mrs. Zabatsky in Milwaukee was our next door neighbor. And there was just this story that happened probably in the late 60s. Uh, we were home from college and our roof caught on fire. And, you know, the, it, there was like this terrifying 10 minutes where we waited for the firemen to arrive. And Mrs. Zabatsky had first alerted us. She said, Bert, my, my dad, uh, your roof is on fire. So, we're out there and the firemen get there and they're uh, unloading the ladders and they're doing, you know, dragging the hoses and the roof is burning and the ladder was stuck. So Mrs. Zabatsky says, forget the ladder, just point the hose up to the roof. And the firemen went, yeah, and they did. Fire was out in about 20 seconds. We thought about that story and it, it kind of reflected that, you know, we didn't want to be intimidated by professionals, their uniforms, whatever you want to aspire to. We didn't want to be intimidated by anything. And we said, well, we can do it. Mrs. Zabatsky's law is never assume you can't do someone else's job better than they can. 
and which then led to the kind of humbling corollary, uh, never assume someone else can't do your job better than you can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you guys went into this, as you write, not having a clue how to make a movie, not a thought about it. So Mrs. Zabatsky may be an inspiration, but you still had to get through that hump of figuring out how to do it. You know, we started out, I guess, in high school. We did pranks. We got laughs. And then after college, Jerry was still in college. You know, we started doing the theater and we got reaction. We got reaction from family and friends, even when we were in Milwaukee. And then when we did the theater, we got reaction from, we had a 70-seat theater and people loved it and we got great reviews. And so these were confidence building events for us. And so it, I, it wasn't, I don't know if it was so much chutzpah. Maybe it was just chutzpah to start the theater in the first place. And then we went to LA. Jim quit his job. I quit my job. Jerry had nothing to lose. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry actually, you know, we talked about it. Jerry never had a job. (laughs) (laughs) Nor were the stakes very high. I mean, we were single guys in our 20s. It's not like we had kids to feed or we were going to go off to war or something. We were going to move to L.A. and try to make people laugh. But on the flip side of that, you were not asking Hollywood to take a small risk. I mean, you're talking about three directors, which had never been done before a parody with straight actors, which had never been done before. So the first pitch meetings, how many blank stares and crickets were you met with? All of them. Everybody. Crickets. Well, actually, you know, we we had a lot of meetings at studios or or submitted the script to studios. Everyone's turned down. We got a meeting at Warner Brothers and at the head of the, with the head of the studio, his name was Mark Rosenberg. And he loved us. He loved the idea. And then we gave him the script and he read the script <laughs> and it was a so you know, for whatever reason. And, and in fact, in the book, you can see people read it and a really smart guy at Paramount, who was a story guy, a really good film guy, Tom Perry, read the script and he didn't get it until we had a personal meeting with him. We explained, you know, the concept that we were going to do it like a B movie and with straight actors. And then he got it. So it was, and I don't even know if Michael Eisner, who actually did greenlight the movie at Paramount, if he realized what it was. He may have thought, and I don't know, yes or no, but he may have thought, well, great, this is Animal House on an airplane. He just thought the the concept of a comedy on an airplane was great. (laughs) I, I don't know if he realized quite what it was, but then we realized later how lucky we were. I mean, we can't believe it today, how lucky we were to end up at Paramount. And, and their executives there were it became an all-star team. So every executive and junior executive there later were the heads of studios. You know, there was Diller, Katzenberg, Frank Mancuso, Don Steele, and the list just went on. I think the rejections sort of fueled the fire. And as, as opposed to cowering, we just were all the more in, invigorated because... We knew we were right, and we we knew we were, we were right not just because of some ethereal something or other. We had run this theater for a bunch of years and done this material in front of audiences who loved it. And actually, there was a precursor 
to airplay that we had written called Kentucky Fried Movie. We didn't direct it, but that was also further proof that there was a, a, a place for this kind of humor. There was a little movie within a movie in Kentucky Fried Movie, which is called Fistful of Yen, which was a Bruce Lee satire spoof. And that was done very much in the style of airplane. The characters were all playing it straight. It is amazing. You got actors, good ones. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen, Lloyd Bridges, Peter Graves. Robert Stack. Y- yes, Robert Stack. You got them to play it absolutely deadpan, straight. Did they come eventually to appreciate what you were doing or were they mystified by how this was going to work? Each of them came to it very differently. And only Robert Sack was our first choice. You know, he was, uh, and Stack got it, but he was skeptical uh, that it would work. But he's a trooper, and he's an actor, and you do it. You, you know, you, you do what the director says. Peter Graves read the script. He said, uh, Peter Graves, quote, you know, I, I threw it across the room. It was the worst piece of trash I had ever read. And, uh, and it was the worst case I had ever seen in script. So... This was where our uh, executive producer, Howard Koch, came, who, you know, he was really old, old guy then, 52, I think. 52? No, no, that was old to us then. (laughs) But Howard called Peter and he said, why don't you come in and meet the guy? And so he did come in and fortunately we were not the drugged out weirdos that he expected, (laughs) but, you know, very preppy Midwestern guys. And so, and with Howard's help, he was persuaded to do it. Howard had been the president of the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Sciences and was a very revered figure in Hollywood then. So he gave us a great deal of credibility. I was actually sitting, coincidentally, the row in front of Peter Graves when we first had our cast and crew screening. He and especially his wife... We're just howling. There is a lot of parody, and you talk about this in the book as well. There's a lot of parody in Airplane. There's Ebonics. There's Jewish sports heroes. And a very, very, very gay, over-the-top actor, uh, Stephen Stucker. So what I'm wondering is, could you do it today? Would you be met with the same sort of crickets and tumbleweed that you met with in studio offices back then today? I think there are two kind of different answers or two different points of view to your question. In terms of would the movie work as well today? Absolutely. I don't think there's any question. And and you can still see online people watching Airplane for the first time and reacting as, as well as they did back then. But would studio executives approve a movie? Well, that's a whole different question. And my guess is they would. Stucker is, to me, one of the funniest things in the movie. I could watch that movie over and over just for Stucker. And Jerry talks about the fact that I hadn't even thought about this, that in some ways he's the straight man, that he comes in and he makes fun of all the circumstances. He's just outrageously flamboyantly gay when he does it. Is approaching those jokes with that? Is that why it worked, I guess? Yeah, Stephen Stucker is an actor, probably the least known of the actors in it, but he was, in many respects, your secret weapon Yes, in that movie. Yeah. I think we would all agree on that. We had the uh, Stack Bridges, Graves, and Nielsen playing very hard, serious, and he 
Steve Stucker was a monkey wrench thrown into that. And, you know, we were just making fun of our own concept with, with Stucker. But, you know, we didn't think there was any calculation on our part intellectually that he would be this or that. We just knew him for years and he was in our show and we knew what a wild card he was and how funny he was. I'm interested if you guys tried anything that didn't work. The first cut of Airplane was an hour and 50 minutes, 150. And the release length with end credits is 87 minutes. <laughs> so there was like a little over 20 minutes of stuff that didn't work or wasn't tight enough, all sorts of stuff. We let the audience decide. And I think in movies we've done since then, we make an effort not to put in everything in the first preview. And still, first previews of comedies are always a disaster because you never know, you know, what's too long. And our comedy depends on pace. And the first preview of Airplane was just a disaster. There was so many... So many minutes went by before gags, and you just, you can't do that. And so we kind of established that whole idea of pace and a gag a minute on stage, because we were not all that comfortable as actors on stage. We wanted to keep the audience laughing. Is that where the rules came from? I want to ask about the rules, the rules in the book, the rules of comedy, the ZAZ rules of comedy. Actually, we took some of the rules from uh, reviews, from the newspaper reviews that we got. But one of Jim's fraternity brothers from Madison came out to LA and he was a comedy writer. We noticed that, so he came to see the first preview and then we had a meeting with him the next day or two. I think he pointed out one particular bit in the show where two characters were trying to be funny and said, you have to pick one to be the swan. And he said, what you were doing is a joke on a joke. Mm. So that became our first rule. We added rules after that. There's one reviewer, Lawrence Kristen from the LA Times said, they don't do technical pizzazz. It's not a, it's just wit. It's not technical pizzazz. And so we put, that's why technical pizzazz is rule number nine or whatever. And I've always felt the most important rule is there are no rules. Because in fact, comedy is an art form and to think that uh, really the rules were just a shorthand for us working together so we wouldn't have to go into elaborate arguments. And I love number one, joke on a joke. Two jokes at the same time cancel each other out. So if the joke is in the background, as so many are in Airplane, the foreground action should be serious. And if the foreground action is funny, the background action should be serious. Focus on one joke at a time. We do that rule in airplane. I, one example of it is when Leslie Nielsen is describing to Julie Haggerty what happens when, you know, when somebody eats the bad fish and then Peter Graves is in the foreground doing the, the funny reaction. Doing the symptoms. Yeah. It took me three or four viewings to even catch the red and white zone argument in the airport background. I mean, it's it's there are there are many layers. How do three guys, even three guys that like each other as much as you did, direct a movie and not kill each other? Is there a straight answer to that, Jim? <laughs> well, in fact, we had been working together on airplane for five or six years by the time we got to film it. So we were all 
of an absolutely similar mind about how everything was supposed to look and taste and smell and everything. So there were very, very few disagreements during the filming. Unfortunately, there are three of us, so it was always two out of three. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We even had a concept that we called screaming and yelling, where the uh, two guys who who were in the majority still had to listen to the third guy if he was adamant about, you know, X, Y, or Z. And so often we do another take with that suggestion, with that third point of view. Forbes magazine did a survey at one point. What movie has the most laughs per minute of any movie ever made? And Airplane, I don't think there's a close second. Airplane, needless to say, was adjudged to have the most laughs per minute in the film. Did you really want to do that? Did you have to compress so that there were times when I would be laughing and I'd miss a joke because it came so close on the previous one? That means that you have to pay to see the movie again. (laughs) (laughs) Four times. I've seen it four times. Oh, that's cool. I always thought of Leslie Nielsen as a crazy loony comedy actor. He wasn't. In some ways, you guys are the ones that pushed him in that direction. I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the discovery of the great that launched a thousand comedies. Well, Leslie was not the first choice. Mm. We had three actors ahead of him who all turned down the role. And it was, we were three weeks from starting to shoot and we didn't have anybody. And we thought of, there was this guy, this actor who played the captain on the Poseidon Adventure and a bunch of other things. I don't even think we knew his name. And we found out Leslie Nielsen, but his acting style was perfect. He appeared to not have a humorous bone in his body. (laughs) So Leslie loved the script. He wanted to do it. He said, you know, uh, I've done comedy before. I I did a MASH episode. And (laughs) Jim and I looked at each other and thought, okay, well, we'll forget that he even said that. (laughs) But later we found out Leslie loved the script so much. He had told his agent, I don't care what they offer, take it. I, I will pay them to do this. <laughs> so Leslie got it right from the start. Well, the book again, Shirley, you can't be serious. One of the iconic lines that comes out of Airplane. 43 years later, people still quoting that and many other lines from the movie. I want to thank both of you, David Zucker, Jim Abrahams. Thank you ever so much for being with us. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The Girlfriend is a free weekly e-newsletter from AARP built on the belief that girlfriend power is everything. It offers stories for Gen X women related to sex, health, beauty, travel, and money. Whether it's a shoulder to cry on or help navigating the next phase of your life, visit thegirlfriend.com to subscribe. You can also join the Girlfriend Book Club, a closed Facebook group that hosts live author interviews and free book giveaways. Again, it's thegirlfriend.com, because everybody needs a girlfriend. All right, rapid fire questions. All right, Dad, you want to start? Jim Abraham's the funniest movie that you didn't make that you've ever seen. Any all. I love Danny Hall. Hmm. David Zucker, same question. Probably Danny Hall would play it again, Sam. I mean, when I saw them, I just, you know, we were so inspired by Woody Allen. What advice, like, so the ZAZ of today, what advice would you give the ZAZ starting out? My answer is quit now, you'll never make it. <laughs> <laughs> I first answered that after a Q&A and the audience, I just was spontaneous. The audience laughed just like you did. And I thought, oh, my God, uh, that sounds like such a jerk thing to say. And then I added, but if you can ignore that advice, you'll be halfway there. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be responsible for saying to anybody, yeah, you can do it. (laughs) I mean, we're approached by so many people who say, do I do this or that? Today, you can write and film and edit and show it to an audience. For a nickel. If you have an iPhone, you can do that. And my advice is rather than overthink it, just do it. What is your favorite moment in the movie? I can answer while Jim tries to think of his favorite moment. You know what I like the best is it's a it's a joke that was funny, you know, forty years ago and is funny now and will be funny forty years from now. It's when the stewardess says, I've never been so scared besides I'm 26 and I'm not married. And then the other lady comes in and says, well, I've never been so scared, but at least I have a husband. <laughs> <laughs> that joke was truly written by all three of us. No one of us came up with that. And, and I, I remember how we came up with that. And it was just, I, I just love that gag. Jim? My favorite joke, or one of my favorites, is famous Jewish sports legend. Because we're three (laughs) Jewish kids from Milwaukee who wanted to be able to poke fun at everybody. And that enabled us to do that because we were making fun of ourselves. Three very mediocre Jewish athletes. You write in the book that you had a very low budget. And I was wondering when I saw the movie, the last shot in the movie is that or right at near the end, is the nose of the 747 crashing into the airport through a huge glass window. And I kept thinking, that had to be expensive. How did they do that again and again? But you said you had no plan B and you had one shot at that. Make you nervous? Yeah, one take. And actually, 
as it happened, one of the cameras didn't work. We <laughs> used the tapes from the other three cameras, I guess. I have to ask a rapid fire question about books because uh, we're called The Bookcase. I'll start with David. Do you have a most influential book in your life? You know, I, I read a lot of nonfiction history books, and I have dozens of books that I just love. You know, you know I, I especially am waiting for the next Years of Lyndon Johnson by Robert Carroll mm. and the fifth one. I felt the same way about Manchester's series on Churchill, which uh, was brilliantly written. Anyway, I, Jim, the most influential book in your life? It was published in 1990, and it's called Treatment of Childhood Epilepsy. And in 92, I had a kid who got very sick with intractable seizures and we took him to a bunch of neurologists, and they all recommended drugs and surgery. And we tried drugs, and we tried surgery with our son. And then I read Treatment of Seizures in Childhood Epilepsy, written by Dr. John Freeman, who ran pediatric neurology at Johns Hopkins. And in it, he talked about the ketogenic diet, which had been known in medical literature since the 1920s, and its efficacy for childhood epilepsy had been well documented. I read that book. I looked up Dr. Freeman. We took our kid to Johns Hopkins. He started the diet. And his seizures, which he had been experiencing at a rate of about a dozen a day, Ooh. went away in two days. Oh, my God. Off all four anti-epileptic medications he was on within a month. And he's 31 now. He's never had another seizure. He's had a wonderful life. He's a great kid. And funny, too. If you could go back and make Airplane again, would you do anything differently? Yeah, I, I, there are probably tons of things I do differently. But I mean, it's only 10% or something. I mean, generally, it came off great. It's just little details. Uh, you know, any movie that we've ever done, I'm sure there's things that we think, oh, I, I, I would do that differently. But I, I can't even think of anything specifically. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure we would do... Uh, a, a reference to Anita Bryan today. Oh, that's right. Those topical references. Yeah. That's right. Last question we have, we stole from Stephen Colbert, but we find it illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Five more movies. Five more years. I love talking about that last shot where the nose of the 747 goes crashing through the window. They said that they, they, first of all, they had a minimal, they had no money. They're minimal budget. Of course not. And I think it was uh, David who said our budget was smaller than Star Wars that was being made at the time was over budget. And the other thing he said that I loved, which we couldn't include in the movie, when that nose of the 747 comes crashing through the window into the terminal, there's a woman standing in the terminal holding a baby. And when the nose comes through the glass, she runs away. She throws the baby up in the air and runs away. Heck yeah. <laughs> and he said, he said, that's all he can see when he looks at that, when he looks at that scene. Very, very funny, guys. As I say, an incredible story that they made that movie. 
I think, you know, one of the things that really took me by surprise as I went back and, and read it. First of all, I remember being a kid to a very serious journalist who often went and saw serious movies for his job. And so to find out that you were a screwball comedy fan who wanted to take me to the opening night of the Naked Gun films was always awesome. I think at one point I said, I saw Airplane. And you go, oh, you saw Airplane? I said, you like Airplane? <laughs> this started oh, so many trends in comedy that I think sometimes it's easy to forget what a trendsetter it was. The idea of having not comedians do deadpan, but serious actors do deadpan. You know, comedy going on in the entire frame. Well, as you say, a lot of people have made movies in the same genre since, but I don't think anybody's ever topped it. Mm -mm. I think Airplane is is really one of a kind. Anyway, we thank you for listening. We want to remind you of the people who made this podcast possible, and then we will have a couple of codas to take us off the air. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America and Josh Cohen and Nia McLean and Cameron Shertavian at ABC Audio. This interview and the whole experience of doing this book with David and Jerry has just been a, a phenomenal experience because we got to go a half lifetime ago and review this sort of miracle 10 years in our lives. And in doing it, we got to rekindle that same creative relationship that we experienced 50 years ago. There was a whole life leading up to an airplane and then an entire lifetime, you know, leading away from it. And it's literally the gift that keeps on giving. We got to do this book after 43 years, which has united ZAZ again. And we get in the same kind of agreements, disagreements, and we work it out. And there's, there's never anything negative about it. We're the same guys who we were all those years ago. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.